We'll be reading from Galatians 1, the first five verses. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Dear Father, we pray this morning that you would grab our attention and not let it go, that you would set the stage in our hearts to make us humble and receptive to all that you have to show us in this marvelous little letter from Paul to the Galatians. Humble us, Lord, so that we will not treat the rebukes and warnings and exhortations of this book as if they apply only to someone else when you know full well that they apply to every one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to paint a little scenario just to spark our thinking about some of the big themes that we're going to see in this book. One night before a football game that would settle a conference championship, three students from one of the two rival universities packed the trunk of one of their cars with a bunch of cans of green spray paint. Green was their school color, one of the two school colors. They put on camo face paint and deer hunting overalls, and then they drove several hours to get to the rival university, and they timed it so that they'd get there about 3 a.m. when college students might actually be asleep. They very stealthily wandered around the campus looking for something prominent to paint green really fast so they could then get out of there without being noticed. In a very well-kept courtyard, they came to a great bronze statue of a man in full military uniform standing in very stately pose. As one of the boys quickly started to uncap his first can of paint, the second boy grabbed his hand and said, Wait, wait, we can't paint this statue. It's much too valuable. If we got caught painting this thing, they'd throw us under the jail. We need to find something that will get us in less trouble. Then the third boy, who had been looking at the inscription on the statue's marble pedestal while the other two were having this little conversation, finally spoke up in a very sober tone of voice, and he said, there's a much more important reason that we can't paint this statue. This is a memorial to a highly decorated veteran of World War II. When he was a young lieutenant, he laid down his own life, going back repeatedly into a spray of enemy gunfire to rescue four of his wounded platoon members and to bring them to safety during one of the fiercest battles in the European campaign. When I saw the name on this plaque, I realized that my own grandfather used to talk to me about this man all the time when I was a kid. And every time he talked about him, he would get more passionate than I'd ever seen him get talking about anything else. He said this was the most courageous man he had ever known. And if this was also 
the kindest and most selfless and most loving man that he had ever known. And my grandfather knew those things about this man firsthand. See, Granddad was one of those four soldiers that this man laid down his life to save. So let me be real clear about this. We're not painting this statue. In fact, I'm not going to dishonor this man by painting anything on this campus or any other campus. And I hope that you will follow me in that determination. I'll meet you back at the car. The first boy who hastily went for his can of spray paint as soon as they came upon the highest profile object that they could find was practicing licentiousness. He was casting off all accountability to laws and rules and he was ready to make the biggest splash that he could make. Paul will talk only a little bit about licentiousness in this epistle. The second boy was practicing legalism. He was very concerned about laws, but only to the extent that he might actually have to suffer unpleasant consequences for violating those laws. He had no real concern about the principle behind the law. Paul will have a lot to say about legalism in this epistle. The third boy was driven by love. Love that came from knowing the character of two men the character of his grandfather whom he deeply loved and respected, and the character of the man on the statue whom his grandfather had clearly deeply loved and respected, a man whose character had been proven by his actions. The response of that third boy goes to the very heart of this epistle that we're about to study. When we come face to face with the grace of God that he lavished upon us at the cross of Jesus Christ when we were still sinners and enemies of God. We come to know something exceedingly impressive about God's character. His grace toward us at the cross proves the quality of His love. Paul makes a very personal statement in Galatians 2.20. He says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The grace is that Jesus delivered himself up for us and that proves his love. When we behold the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ, we come to know and trust the depth of love that he has for us. And then as we continually to come, uh, come to know more and more about all that is true of him, of his holiness, his hatred of sin, his compassion and forbearance, and forgiveness, we grow to see all the more clearly the magnitude of His love toward us. And that love becomes the most compelling and controlling thing in our lives. It becomes the most motivating thing that we know. It is the knowledge of God's grace worked out toward us in Jesus Christ that convinces us of His love, and it is His love for us that compels us to trust Him and fills us with the longing to honor Him and to serve Him and to please Him in all things. The beginning of our life in Christ, the progress of our life in Christ, and the glorious culmination of our life in Christ are all His work. 
They're all His doing. Every bit of it. They're all grace. Whenever we think and act as if any of it is our work, we nullify the grace of God. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.21. And that's what this little book is about. I want to establish some context, date and authorship and all that. The authorship is clear. Paul makes the declaration, and this is one of the least, among liberal scholars, this is one of the least disputed authorships of any book in the Bible. There's still some persistent debate among godly Bible scholars about the timing, about whether Paul wrote this epistle just before or just after the Jerusalem council that occurred around 50 A.D., Now, I go with the just before view because I believe the events described in Galatians, especially chapter 2, exactly match the events described in Acts chapter 15, the first two verses. The events that led directly to the Jerusalem council. Now, it also seems clear from Acts 15 that by the time that historical meeting occurred in Jerusalem, Peter had become... A, a fervent advocate for the very same position that Paul held with regard to what needed to be expected of Gentile converts. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But my point is, Paul talks in, in Galatians 2 about Peter being in a place that doesn't match what we see in, in Acts 15. So I think this came first. Paul sent this epistle to several churches in the Galatian region of Asia Minor in what is now Turkey. These were most likely the churches in the southern part of that region that had been started by Christ through Paul's own ministry, beginning with his first missionary journey. Churches like Lystra, which was Timothy's hometown, Derbe, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch. Paul's own hometown, Tarsus, was in this same general area of Asia Minor. The first five verses of Paul's letter to the Galatians comprise his brief introduction to the epistle. And I want to kind of move through those verses pretty straightforwardly. At the beginning of the very first verse, Paul says something about himself that will impact every word that he writes. He declares that his calling as an apostle is, quote, not from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The churches in the Galatian region, whom Paul identifies as his readers in the second verse, were falling increasingly into the clutches of the Judaizers. These were Jews who called themselves Christians, but who demanded that Gentile converts be required to be circumcised and to keep many aspects of the ceremonial law of Moses. Any Gentile who professed faith in Jesus but who did not comply with those requirements of the law should not, according to those Judaizers, be recognized as a real Christian. Because Paul forcefully opposed any such teaching as absolute heresy against Christ, these Judaizers had it in for him. (laughs) They had been doing everything that they could do to marginalize Paul in the eyes of these Galatian believers. They were casting doubt on his, even on his qualification as an apostle. 
and on any notion that his writings to the church should hold any authority over them. So Paul took that bull right by the horns in the very first verse. He didn't flinch at all in asserting his apostolic authority. He declares he was not sent by men nor through the agency of men. The reality is other men weren't even in the conversation when the resurrected Christ appeared to to Paul and turned his heart to himself. Paul says that he was sent by Jesus Christ and by God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. And it's very significant that he should mention the resurrection at that point because Paul is the only apostle who was called out, chosen by Christ, after Christ was raised from the dead. Paul was every bit as much an an apostle of Jesus as the original 11 apostles, disciples. And he was the apostle whom Jesus had explicitly commissioned to take the gospel to all the Gentiles throughout the, the Roman Empire. Paul fully expected and required that the Galatian churches and all the churches receive his words as the words of Jesus Christ. And that's how God expects us to receive Paul's words. None of this is up for grabs. None of this is presented for us to consider. As with all of Scripture, it is presented with God's full expectation that we will submit to it without delay and without reservation as God's own word to us. Paul's salutation of blessing in verse 3 is by far his most common salutation to, to the churches and co-workers under his charge. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's undeserved favor toward those whom He calls to Himself. Peace is the New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom from the Old Testament. It means pervasive well-being in every aspect of life that derives from or proceeds from well-being in our relationship with God. When it is well between us and God, it is well with us. That's what the Bible calls peace. Every time Paul puts these two power words together, grace and peace, grace always comes first. Have you ever thought about why that is? Why grace always comes first? And what's the connection between the two? Martin Luther, in his highly influential commentary on Galatians, has much to say about Paul's trademark salutation here. Luther lays out a contrast. On one side are those who have pervasive peace in their hearts and consciences because they know the redeeming power of God's grace toward them in Jesus Christ. On the other side are those that Luther calls merit mongers. Isn't that a wonderful turn of phrase? Merit mongers. He says, the more merit mongers labor and sweat to bring themselves out of sin, the deeper they are plunged into it. There is no means to take sin away but grace alone. That is why Paul, in all the greetings of his letters, sets grace and peace against sin and a bad conscience. It is impossible for the conscience to be quiet and joyful unless it has peace through grace. That is, through the forgiveness of sins promised in Christ. 
Luther goes on to say, there will be no rest for my bones or yours unless we listen to the word of grace and stick to it consistently and faithfully. Then our conscience will certainly find grace and peace. In short, Luther is saying, Paul is saying, there is no peace for us apart from God's grace toward us. Grace is the ground of our peace. Now, as we'll discuss further next week, when Paul launches into his forceful rebuke of the Galatians in verse 6, it is God's grace toward us in Christ that is front and center in that rebuke. In that verse, Paul says, I am amazed that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. What makes the true gospel true is that it is the gospel of grace. And what makes every false gospel false is that it is not the gospel of grace. It is not good news if it is not grace news. The remaining verses of Paul's introduction lay out the very essence of that grace news. I'll read verses 4 and 5 together with verse 3 so we get the whole flow of thought. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Amen. According to these verses, the grace of God toward us is accomplished grace. It is grace secured for us in the real life event of the cross that happened in space and time when Jesus gave Himself for our sins in our place. It is accomplished grace. It is planned grace decreed according to the will of God our Father before the worlds existed. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, in Peter's amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is accomplished grace and it is planned grace. And it is effectual grace. It is grace that is absolutely assured to deliver all who receive it out of this present evil age. And that deliverance begins now. It's accomplished, it's planned, it's effectual, and it is enduring grace. It's grace that never departs from us as long as we are still in this present evil age. The deliverance that this grace Paul is talking about imparts to us is past, present, and future deliverance. It is justification completed, sanctification ongoing, and glorification assured. Every work of salvation that God does in the life of the believer was secured and sealed in the preeminent work of God's grace toward us, us undeserving sinners at the cross of Christ. I'm going to talk through, talk about those terms as we proceed. Sanctification, justification, sanctification. Sanctification, glorification. So don't worry too much if those don't make sense to you yet. Now that's a quick run through of the first five verses, Paul's introduction. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning doing a little more stage setting for, for this study of the epistle to the Galatians. I am delighted at the prospect of digging into Galatians with you. This book has had a profound effect on me, and it's had a profound effect on a lot of other people. 
including the likes of Martin Luther and John Bunyan and Charles Wesley and John Wesley. This book is all about the greatest gift that any of us will ever receive. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now some of you may be thinking, well, that's not exactly front page news for a group like this. After all, that's the central theme of the New Testament, really of the whole Bible. Well, I would respond to that with this, this careful warning. Your own alignment with all that the Bible says about this core of the Christian faith is something that you should not take for granted. Based on what we will see in this short but very pointed book, you may very well not be thinking as rightly about such fundamental things as grace and faith and works as you think you're thinking. We have a problem with grace. Grace in the Bible in both Testaments is the amazing, astounding favor and blessing of God bestowed on people who flatly do not deserve it, ever. On people who instead deserve nothing but eternal condemnation. By the way, that's a great kind of acid test to see if somebody's really getting the gospel. Ask them what they believe they deserve from God. This includes every human being since Adam. Grace is the fact that we deserve eternal condemnation. Grace is God giving us something unimaginably good when what we have actually earned is something unimaginably bad. And the Apostle Paul is perhaps the New Testament's greatest poster child for grace. Here's a militant enemy and persecutor of Jesus Christ, transformed by God's amazing grace alone into an all-in follower and advocate of Jesus Christ to the point of death. Paul understood more vividly than many of us just how mighty God's grace is to transform the life of a man or woman or child. But beloved, if there's one thing about human beings that the epistles of Paul make very clear beyond the fact that we're all sinful and cursed apart from Christ, it is that we have a problem with grace. And no book in the entire Bible makes that more vividly clear than this one. We have a big problem with God's grace. We are not easily satisfied to receive and embrace it as it comes to us from God. We feel compelled to tweak it, to adjust it, to add something to it so that it matches up better with our way of thinking and our way of understanding things and doing things. This problem that we have with grace persists very tenaciously even after we have come to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And the fact that we have this big problem with God's grace turns out to be a big, big problem for us. It messes badly with our relationship with God. It messes badly with our relationship with each other. And worst of all, it distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ by which men are saved. It distorts, indeed, if Paul means what he says, it denies the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the message that we bear to the world. Our problem with grace is a problem that needs to get fixed. Now the exact nature of this very problem, the great urgency of it for the Galatians, and God's very straightforward prescription to fix it, 
are lessons that we very much need to learn from this small book. Our failure to embrace the absolute imperative of grace and to embrace it entirely without reservation or adjustment on our part is at the root of most of that which ails the church of Jesus Christ in any age. When I use the words the absolute imperative of grace, which is my title for the series, when I use the phrase the absolute imperative of grace, what I mean is that every good thing, every good thing, Every good thing we will ever have, every good thing we will ever do, every good thing that will ever be true of us is a gift. It is an undeserved gift from God secured for us entirely by the the perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. We can't buy it beg it or steal it. We can't muster it up from within ourselves because it doesn't come from us. And we cannot add to it or modify it in any way. Any change that we make to God's gracious gift nullifies it and it turns us away from grace. Paul will make that infinitely clear in this letter. One of the first things that stands out about this letter in the first chapter is that it is the the only epistle of Paul... This is the only group of churches that received no commendation or prayer of thanks to God for those to whom he's writing. There's no pat on the back here. Paul's letters very predictably contain a declaration of his authority as an apostle, which we just saw in this one, followed by an identification of his audience, which we also saw, writing to the Galatians. And then somewhere in the first couple of paragraphs, Paul very predictably includes a prayer of thanksgiving to God for that church's demonstration of genuine faith or hope or love or some combination of of those three. The only one that, the only church that gets the whole trifecta is the Thessalonians. But that prayer of thankfulness or commendation for the church's progress in Christ is glaringly missing in this epistle. Instead, immediately after his five-verse introduction, Paul starts the letter in earnest with this statement we read a minute ago. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Yikes. On the negative side, and it's a very big negative, this letter is a scathing, in-your-face rebuke. But it is a rebuke fueled by a fierce love. By Paul's deep love for Jesus Christ, by his protective love for the gospel, and by his fiercely protective love for his children in the faith, in these churches that God started through him. Paul is writing with all the earnestness, urgency, and deep affection that drives a loving father to yell out when he sees his son reaching for a beautiful, glowing coal in the campfire. Paul's piercing words are filled with compassion and love for the people of God. This is the same apostle who wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 11, right after presenting a long list of life-threatening dangers that he had endured for the advancement of the gospel. Paul says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? 
Who is led into sin without my intense concern? See, Paul isn't writing this letter to the Galatian churches because he's done with them. He wrote this letter because he deeply loved them. And that's how you and I need to read these words. We need to see every word in this epistle as a precious gift from God through his faithful apostle. The stern warnings, the urgent exhortations, and the powerful transforming truths in these six chapters are a priceless treasure to every child of God and to every local church. And while there's a lot of correcting going on in this book, (laughs) there's also a positive side, and it's a very big positive. Because at its core, this letter is all about the incomparably good news of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Grace that we lay hold of only one way. By faith in the one from whom that grace has come to us. As the book progresses, we'll see that the word faith is used much more often than the word grace. But in chapter 1, as Paul is drawing a very clear distinction between the true gospel and every fake gospel, it is grace that's front and center. The grace that Paul says is behind his calling and our calling. All of Paul's key assertions in this epistle about the great divide between law and faith, all that he's going to say to purge the church of the crippling legalism that the Judaizers were peddling, will be built upon the foundation of how we are justified. How we are justified. How is it that we come to have a righteous standing in the eyes of a perfectly holy God? That's going to be the most prominent and repeated theme throughout the book. Paul tells us how we're justified in chapter 2, and he does so in the most forceful and straightforward terms that human language allows. I'm not going to jump ahead, but you'll see what I mean when we get there. And he comes back to that how over and over. And just in simple form, he says we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, completely apart from works of the law, the law of Moses or any other law. That's the most often repeated assertion in this book. As the book progresses, though, Paul also declares unambiguously that we who have been justified are now being perfected, chapter 3, verse 3, the very same way that we were justified. In other words, we are sanctified the same way we were justified. Paul doesn't use the word sanctified or sanctification in this epistle, but he most certainly talks about it. I want to define those two terms sufficiently, and because they're important, I I don't want to be using jargon that's not clear. Justification is God imputing, accounting to us a righteousness that doesn't come from us. It's the righteousness of His Son. He's clothing us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and then officially and permanently declaring us to be acceptable in His sight because we're clothed in that righteousness. For all who have come to faith in Jesus... God sees our sin as fully removed, taken away from us. Jesus took the guilt and the penalty of our sin upon Himself and He paid the whole eternal debt that we owed to God once and for all at the cross. It is finished. He has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12. 
And He has covered us in His own righteousness. When God looks at us, He sees Christ's righteousness as ours. So our position, our standing in the eyes of God is a perfectly righteous standing. That's what justification is. Now, sanctification is God's work to make our state match up with our standing. To make our daily lives actually reflect in our thoughts and words and actions the righteousness that now defines us in His eyes. For every believer, justification is once and done when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. But sanctification is a lifelong process. If you have any questions about those two terms, come see me because it's important that you understand those. We will see that in Galatians 2.20, Paul says of himself that the life that he now lives, he lives on the exact same foundation of grace and faith by which he was justified. The believer's sanctification happens the same way that his justification happened. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and explicitly not by works of the law of Moses or any other law. So sanctification happens the same way as justification. Now, Paul's going to have a lot to say about these two, what I'll call grace connections. God's grace in our justification and God's grace in our sanctification. He'll put a very heavy emphasis on the first of those two, justification, because the second proceeds from and is based on the first in every respect. We know how the progress of our sanctification works because we know how justification works. Now, because both are entirely about grace, they're about what God has done, not what we have done, that means that the way we lay hold of both is not by doing, it's by trusting. It's by simply trusting what He has done. That's faith. We lay hold of both. Justification and sanctification through faith in Jesus Christ and not, not by works. If God is the one active agent in both our justification and sanctification, then guess what? We are not active agents in those processes. Not in the least. I had a little trouble when I first started reading Luther's commentary because he talks about Passive righteousness. It sounds kind of like let go and let God. But he's making, a, he's making this point. He's saying the agent in both declaring us righteous and conforming us to Christ so that we are righteous indeed, the agent is God. The active person is God, not us. Our part is purely to trust Him, to be utterly dependent upon His part because His part is the only part. Even our faith is the work of God. Paul will strongly rebuke every belief and every practice that threatens to break or even modify either of those two critical grace connections. He will identify and do battle against specific threats to each of those connections in this letter. Let me just restate this one thing to make sure it's as clear as it can be before we launch further into the book next week. The reason that we can only be justified and sanctified through faith in Jesus Christ is because we are justified and sanctified by grace. Grace is God doing for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. Grace is God bringing dead people to life 
covering us in His Son's righteousness and then making our actual lives match up with that righteousness. So if our salvation in every respect, past, present, and future, is God's doing and not our doing, that means, again, our place is to trust in the One who actually does all the saving. The moment we try to do any of it ourselves, we nullify the grace of God. I hope that's clear. It will become clear through the book if it's not yet. Now, how will all this be useful to us? Paul's words will be heavy armor for us against the concerted attacks of Satan because Satan loves nothing more than to break those grace connections in our hearts and in our minds. And every one of us has a powerful tendency to let him do just that. If you don't think so, I pray that you'll stay with us every week as we progress through this book or get the, get the audio for ones that you miss. Because while this teaching is going to show you much that you need to know about God, this book, it will also be teaching you much that you need to know about yourself. Things that you either don't know or that you're very much prone to forget. Alright, if I've lulled you into a low-level coma thus far... <laughs> I'm going to ask you to kind of prop yourself up in your seat and really track with me for the next few minutes. Even after we come to faith in Jesus Christ and have been declared perfectly righteous before God, we are tempted to get out our bag of tools and start messing around with that first and primary grace connection between God's grace and our justification. We very easily turn our eyes usward instead of Godward. We start spending far too much time examining our performance to tell us if we've actually been justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And when we linger too long in that mode with our eyes on us instead of on the author and perfecter of faith, we inevitably find, if we're honest, that our performance falls infinitely short of the standard by which we are measured. Because there's only one standard, and that standard is the righteousness of Christ. So guess what, guys? Every day of your life, you fail the test. So the longer we camp out with our eyes turned this way, the more the certainty, the confidence of our identity in Christ fades, and with it, the certainty of our hope in Christ. And make no mistake, Every time that happens, the quality of our obedience fades as well. Because obedience is the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. We listen to preachers and we read authors who rightly, rightly, please hear me, rightly point out to us that while we are saved through faith alone and Christ alone, faith is never really alone, right? Because real, vital faith affects action. It changes lives. They tell us over and over again with great passion and conviction that real faith is never fruitless faith. And those words are absolutely true and absolutely biblical. But hear me, beloved. As we hear and read such things over and over and over, that trouble, that problem that I talked about earlier that we have with grace causes those true assertions to turn into false emphases. Causes true assertions to turn into false emphases. Specifically, 
to turn into an emphasis that locks our radar on the wrong target. It fixes our gaze usward instead of Godward. In his excellent book, Grace Works, Douglas Bond at one point is writing from the enemy's perspective, much as C.S. Lewis did in the Screwtape Letters, one of my favorite books. He's mimicking Satan's own words, and he says, if I play my cards well, they will say true things, true things, like faith that saves is never alone, until pretty soon that's the main thing they like to say about faith. We need to think about that. Once our strong focus turns from the root of our faith to the fruit of our faith, the absolute imperative of grace starts to take a back seat to our fixation on our own performance. When we push the very truths that actually turn our faith into action so far from our attention that they might as well not even be true, we have a problem. We stop saying often and with unfading confidence, by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We stop saying without apology or qualification to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is reckoned as righteousness. We stop saying by His doing we are in Christ who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's Romans 4, 5, and 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. Beloved, if we truly hear what Paul says in this letter to, to the Galatians, and if we bask in it, and feed on it, and abide in it, our eyes will be drawn with fierce determination to the One by whose grace we are made sons and daughters of the living God. And nothing will be able to turn our gaze away from Him. Then and only then, God will produce fruit a hundredfold through these earthen vessels. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Those words mean something. And what they mean is very, very foundational to the Christian life. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That must be our favorite thing to say about faith. That keeps the focus on the author and perfecter. But that by itself won't address either the whole problem or the whole solution. Because as soon as we move on from the matter of our justification to the matter of our sanctification, our problem with grace easily gets a foothold in our minds and hearts that's even harder for us to shake off. Many Christians who are perfectly in line with the Bible, with the Bible when it comes to how they got justified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, nonetheless spend years or even decades of their Christian lives badly out of line with the Bible when it comes to how they are being sanctified. Having begun by trusting entirely and only in what God did for us at the cross, they then proceed to live out their daily lives as if practical godliness is all about what we do for God. As if it's about getting the right set of rules Nice little set of rules 
and then mustering up compliance to those rules by sheer force of will. Breaking bad habits and building good habits. A little bit of prayer thrown in for good measure here and there. Paul is going to completely blow that set of assumptions about the Christian life out of the water in this epistle. So if that's how you've been approaching the pursuit of godliness in your own life, prepare to be firmly but compassionately slapped around a lot by this letter. It'll be the most fruitful and blessed beating that you will ever receive if you get the lesson when it's done. It will free you from concerns about pleasing men. It will fill you with confidence that your usefulness to God is all about Him and not at all about you. It will fill you with overflowing gratitude toward God, which, beloved, is a far, far more powerful and far more durable motivation for godliness than that load of shame and guilt that's been dragging you through each day. And know this, Wherever you are today in terms of your understanding of these things, however well you think you've got all this nailed down, there will come a time when you will seriously need to reckon with what Paul says in this amazing little book that's so full of spiritual dynamite. This wonderfully scandalous, outrageous little book. The imperative of grace is the cure for both burdensome law-keeping and self-indulgent lawlessness. Put it another way, it's the cure for both legalism and licentiousness. Just a couple of more things here. I firmly believe that every single one of us bounces at various times in our Christian life from one of those errors to the other. From legalism to licentiousness. From law-keeping to self-indulgence. Both in our own lives and in our dealings with other people. The, The same guy who freaks out one Sunday morning because a woman shows up at church in a dress that's a little too clingy, rationalizes in his own mind that harmless little click on the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition link in the corner of the page that he goes to for basketball scores. And please don't tell me that you have not been on both of those sides of one sin or another at different points in your life. Judging someone harshly one day for falling even a little short of the mark by some external measure and then allowing yourself to indulge in the reality, the internal reality of the sin that you were judging on another day. If you tell me that's never happened to you, I'll find it hard to believe. And it rather predictably, it is those who err most grievously on one side of that picture who also err most grievously on the other side because the cause of both of them is a compromise of grace and the cure for both of them is grace. Paul's going to address both of those deeds, uh, both of those errors, the deeds of checklist righteousness that makes an idol of law and the deeds of the flesh that flatly reject God's law. And he's going to show us that the cure to both is grace. God's grace says to us what Samuel said to Israel in 1 Samuel 12.24. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. When we really get it, God's amazing grace toward us in Christ becomes our power source and motivation for righteous living. Becomes our compass. Becomes our sufficiency for ministry. And becomes our message to the world.
That's what this book is about, and I hope that you'll stay with us as we take our journey through it. Dear Father, thank you for this body. There are so many people here that, that have had such an amazing impact on me and that have shown me the grace of Jesus Christ in, a, in just a multitude of ways, even this week. May you fill us, Lord, with the awareness, with the response to that amazing grace so that we know whose we are, we know why we're here, we know what we must do, and we know that we've been empowered to do it only and entirely by you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.